All right, Alexander, let's talk about the offensive that happened, but didn't happen. It was a pretty, pretty wild evening um, of news. Um, even RT read an article saying that the big Ukraine offensive uh, had begun. They cited one reporter, but once RT published it, then, I mean, it was all over telegram and twitter and and then within like about an hour maybe an hour 20 minutes you got reports coming in from from the front line saying that everything is pretty calm here and there with the exception of bakhmut so yeah i think there's some going back and forth in bakhmut yeah um, that is taking place but your your thoughts as to everything that happened with the offensive that didn't happen but a lot of people thought it happened and yeah There was no, I mean, I think that's the first point to say. There was clearly no offensive yesterday. Uh, um, There was apparently a big Ukrainian attack close to Bakhmut itself, which we'll come to in in a moment. But it was very weird because um, Zelensky, as we discussed in another video, made this statement, there's not going to be a Ukrainian offensive now. We're not ready. Then... There were these reports that the Ukrainians were mounting these attacks with big forces close to Bakhmut, that they were aiming to encircle Bakhmut. There were lots of reports pouring in of breakthroughs by the Ukrainian forces. And then over the course of the night, just as I said, within an hour, you're absolutely correct about saying it. I mean, after everybody was in a complete panic about this. I say everybody. I mean, everybody on the Russian side was in complete panic about this. The Ukrainians themselves said nothing. But <laughs> over the course of that, we then started to get denials from you know people. Of, you know, One front says, all is quiet here. Another front, all is quiet there. We don't know about these troop movements. We don't know what's going on. Well, there's no sign that anything unusual is happening. And then eventually... We got a report from the Russian Defence Ministry, which most unusually intervened and stepped out and said, you know, we you know, we're seeing all of these reports that are circulating all over the place. We want to make it very clear that there is no big offensive going on. There was a Ukrainian attack in Bakhmut, in the area of Bakhmut. And we've had over the last hour, just before we made this programme, a further statement about that from the Russian Defence Ministry. They said that Ukraine did launch a significantly sized attack or series of attacks around the flanks, you know, on, on, on the north and southern flanks of the Ukraine, of, of the Russian forces, the, the Wagner forces in Bakhmut. And they said that up to a thousand Ukrainian troops were involved but this is, bear in mind, over a you know, large area, 95-kilometer area. He said that there were about 10 tanks and 30 infantry fighting vehicles. So not an offensive, but you know, a serious attack. But the Russian Defense Ministry goes on to say that this attack was completely repelled. Um, most of the Ukrainian soldiers were killed. That's what they say. Most of the Ukrainian armored vehicles, including the tanks, were destroyed. The attack was a complete failure. And in the meantime, the Wagner forces continue advancing. 
And in fact, over the course of the evening, we got more reports, this time from Prigozhin uh, himself. He confirms that there are still advancing in Bakhmut. The, the Wagner forces continue to advance in Bakhmut. He said that they've advanced by 220 metres. The, the day before, a soldier from the Wagner group said that they only had 740 metres to go. So if you accept this, this is, you know, about a quarter of the distance, <laughs> so, you know, then well, more than a quarter of the distance they made uh, uh, that they made up over the course of the day. So something did happen around Bakhmut last night. Now, I, I can't obviously verify exactly what did happen, but I've no reason to doubt that in essence, the account of what happened provided by the Russian Defence Ministry is correct. I mean, you could question the scale of the losses that they're alleging. You know, they're saying 540 Ukrainian soldiers out of 1,000 were destroyed, whatever that means. I mean, you might think that is greatly exaggerated. It probably is exaggerated. But overall... When they say that there was this attack and that the attack was repelled and repelled with heavy losses, I personally see no reason to believe them. The most interesting thing about what happened last night is even allowing for the fact that this was a bigger attack than usual. And, you know, Ukrainian attacks in and around Bakhmut happen all the time. This has been a fiercely fought battle. There's lots of ebbs, ebb and flow. Why was there this panic last night? And I'm going to say straight away, I think the reason there's been this panic is because of the effect of Prigozhin's statements over the last few weeks. He's been going out of his way to suggest that the situation on the, on the flanks of the Wagner group is critical, that the Russian forces there barely exist, that they're not defending properly, and this story has spread and gained traction and an awful lot of people worry that it might be true. And I think that when they heard that, you know, the Ukrainians had launched this attack and were advancing in various places, there was this wave of panic because people said, well, what Prigozhin says is proving to be true. And Prigozhin made matters worse because he also issued a statement. He said that the Ukrainian offensive is actually underway. He actually went out and said that. And that, I'm sure, also fed into all of these reports that you got across the battle lines about, you know, Ukrainian advances in Kharkov region and crossing the Dnieper River in Kherson region and all of these things. And it, it shows, to me, the effect of what Prigozhin has been doing, the way in which it has unsettled people, that they are worried now that what he is saying might be true and that, in fact, the Russian military position might not be as stable as the Russian Ministry of Defence would like us all to think. So that, that's, I think, what the explanation for the big events yesterday was. And I'm, I'm sorry to say this, and I don't want to speak of something about which I, I don't know, but which 
one can surmise, perhaps. But I'm going to say this. I'm pretty sure that the, some of the people in the Russian Defence Ministry are not only going to blame Prigozhin for the panic last night, but I think they're going to say to themselves, maybe Prigozhin had a hand in stirring it up. I don't myself think that that was what Prigozhin was actually doing. I don't think he did this deliberately. But I'm pretty sure there are some people in the Russian Defence Ministry who think that. And I'm also going to say something else, which is that I would not be surprised if there are also some people in the Russian Defence Ministry who are now thinking that Prigozhin himself is now trying to slow walk a bit the advance in Bakhmut because he realises that if the Battle of Bakhmut is over, he becomes dispensable and that people will try to get rid of him at that point. So, you know, the whole I, I, I don't believe that either, by the way. I don't think Prigozhin has the power to hold his troops back in, in Bakhmut. But it's the kind of thing that I know people start to think in situations like this. So this whole argument, this whole quarrel between Prigozhin and the Russian Ministry of Defence, well, we see the kind of effects it has. You know, going off of what you said, uh, Peskov, when he was speaking to that Serbian uh, TV channel the other day, and they asked him about Prigozhin, he uh, and, and a viewer brought this up to me, sent me an email, and he, and he said, you know, I was... I've lived in the Soviet Union. I've worked in Russia as well. And uh, listen to what Peskov said in his response to the Serbian uh, TV channel's question. When they asked him about Prigozhin, Peskov did not give Prigozhin's name. He said, we know that there is an individual who has been making videos and, and saying these things on social media. And the viewer that sent me the email, he said, uh, in my experience, this is what he told me, he said, in my experience um, living in the Soviet Union, when they don't name the individual, it usually means that uh, something something bad is is going to come to, to that employee, let's say, uh, that that employee is going to get dismissed or, or something like that. I, I, once again, this is just an exchange that I had with someone, but I noticed it too when Peskov answered the question from the Serbian TV channel. He didn't say Prigozhin. He just said the individual that has been making these videos and saying these things. And, and then he gave his answer. I, I don't know. I just want to throw that out there. Uh, I should say I completely agree with you. And uh, turning first specific point about the effect of the Harkov and Herson offensives, I think it's fair to say that a large section of Russian society had not expected that the Russian army would retreat in the face of a Ukrainian attack. So even if those offensives failed to achieve their objective and that the Russian military response to those offensives was correct, it still came as a shock to a great many people. Now, what that means is that there is a degree of nervousness. People are worried that the same thing might happen all over again. And the problem with Prigozhin's comments is that it is playing to those insecurities. It is fanning them. So when things happen 
like what happened last night. They're saying, my God, this happened in Kharkiv. It happened in Kherson. We were thrown back by the Ukrainians. Prigozhin says that our army is riddled with corruption, that it doesn't really exist, that it can't fight, that Russian soldiers turn and flee when they're faced with an attack. And it's happening all over again. So that's that's what happens. That's what I'm afraid happens when you amplify insecurities in this particular way. And again, I, I am not convinced that Prigozhin himself understands this. I'm not convinced that he really understands some of the effect of what he is doing is having. But one thing I'm absolutely clear and I'm absolutely sure, and, you know, I, I was aware, I haven't seen this interview between Peskov and Serbian television, but I think people in the Kremlin and people in the defence ministry and people right across the government must be absolutely furious with Prigozhin. I think they must be, um, um, they must feel that whatever his achievements and the Wagner organization's achievements on the battlefronts, he's converted himself into a major liability. And when you say that, you know, he's being in effect unpersoned, which is correct, I think it's a sign that they're preparing to move against him. And I talked about this speculation, which I suspect some people have, that he is now trying to slow walk the offensive in Bakhmut. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if one of the reasons why people think that is happening is because they are itching to get Prigozhin out of the picture. And they're saying to themselves, well, he's not really serious about taking Bakhmut because he knows that the moment Bakhmut is taken, we're going to take Wagner back into the rear. We're going to reorganize it, retrain it, rebuild it. And we're going to get Prigozhin himself out of off the scene. And I think you're absolutely right. I think he's got the entire political and military and security leadership in Moscow dead set eventually on getting him out of the picture. And you're also right about the fact that when they don't name someone, it's a very, very bad sign for them. I mean, the same happened to Navalny, for example. There came a point when uh, Russian officials stopped using Navalny's name. And that became a clear indicator that whatever support he might once have had in the Russian power structure, about which there's been a lot of speculation, had melted away and that the Russian political and military and security leadership was closing ranks against him. And I'm afraid the same is happening to Prigozhin himself. And I can't help but think that he must know it. And as I said, he's becoming uneasy and nervous himself. He made another statement today, by the way, which um, I, I think will have compounded his problems because he's invited Shoigu to come to Bakhmut to see what the situation is in Bakhmut. And he's couched it in the most insulting terms about, about Shoigu. He said, you know, in view of your vast military experience, this is Shoigu, come to Bakhmut and see the situation for yourself. 
as Prigozhin knows, Shoigu doesn't have any military experience. He is a civilian. He is the civilian minister in charge of the defense ministry. Very not unusual, by the way, in Russia. Many Russian defense ministers, Bulganin in the 50s, uh, Ustinov in the 70s and 80s, were civilians. It's not unique by any means. But Prigozhin has been constantly harping upon the fact that Shoigu has no military background or experience. And, um, of course... <laughs> evading the fact that he's not got a military background himself either. But when he talks like that about Shoigu, he's not really inviting Shoigu to come to Bakhmut. He's just insulting him. And that must make Shoigu furious. It must make everybody in Moscow furious, the, you know, the leadership there. And as I said, I can't imagine this is going to end well for Prigozhin. Whatever happens in Ukraine and in Bakhmut over the next few days. Yeah. Um, who's closer to, to Putin? Shoigu or Prigozhin? Oh, Shoigu is. Uh, that there is absolutely no question. I mean, first of all, we don't know how close to Putin Prigozhin actually is. I mean, there's a whole legend about Prigozhin being Putin's chef and all of that. I think that, you know, before this year or perhaps even you know, wherever, I think there's one picture of Putin and Prigozhin close to each other. I mean, I might be wrong about this, but I don't think that Prigozhin is particularly close to Putin, actually. Um, and I, I think that, by contrast, Shoigu and Putin go back a very long way. I mean, Shoigu, after all, is a minister in Putin's government. Putin meets him on a regular basis. The two men clearly like each other, and understand each other. I don't think there's any comparison about who has more influence over Putin. Uh, Shoigu has much more than Prigozhin does. Yeah, uh, for what I've uh, understood, Shoigu was, um, he did have some involvement in the military, is that correct? Like so, like yeah. a, an engineer or something along yes. those lines? Yes. He is I, a, I'm he... not sure, but th that's that's my first question to you. And my second question, what about Yerasimov? What... I mean, I've read that he's he is a, a, a brilliant military like mind. Yeah. I, I'm, that's that's what I've read about Yerasimov. I mean, he's like the the Russians' military doctrine is based on his on his uh, his policies. Yes. Um, where where is he in in yes in in all of this, and how close is he to Shoigu and to Putin, and what do you think his relationship is with Wagner and with um, uh, Prigozhin, because in the Peskov interview, Peskov also made it a point to tell the Serbian TV channel that Wagner is part of the Russian forces. I mean, he said it like three yes. times. Yes. Wagner is part of the Russian forces. These are all the Russian forces, he said, fighting in Bakhmut. I mean, he he, he was very clear about that. Yes, yes. Well, um, what connection there is between Putin and Gerasimov, I don't know. Gerasimov is a professional soldier. But what I can say is that when Shoigu was appointed defence minister, the very first step he did was propose Gerasimov for chief of the general staff. So clearly there is a connection between Shoigu and Gerasimov. Now, 
the role of chief of the general staff is a, is not one I think that's well understood in the West. In the Russian military, first of all, he is the chief military official. He he is the person who is in overall charge of the Russian armed forces in terms of their military role. He is also the military's primary organiser and planner. And, you know, he's the person who makes sure that, you know, the official, the right officers are appointed to the right posts, that they get the supplies they need. He is in charge of the overall planning system within the Russian military, the military planning system. And in Russia specifically, and this is fairly closely approximates to what you also had in Germany, when they also had a general staff system. They don't anymore, by the way. That ended with the Second World War. But in Russia, the chief of the general staff is also often expected to be a military theorist, a military intellectual, somebody who considers the nature of war, keeps track of how it is evolving, um, suggests developments of the Russian armed forces to keep pace with that change and evolution in the nature of war. Now, that, I think, sums up Gerasimov. He's a planner. He's an organiser. He's a theorist. The one thing I think that most people would also agree, though, is that he is not somebody who has been much of a combat officer. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I'm very familiar with Gerasimov's entire military history, and it's quite likely that he's done many more things that anybody in the West knows about. But he's more an intellectual, if you like, than the kind of person who gets into the mud and the battle and is the sort of person who leads troops. But remember, that's not necessarily the function of an officer of the uh, the senior officer of the general staff. Now, Gerasimov is the overall commander, not just of the Russian armed forces, but also of the Russian forces engaged in this war. But Surovikin, who is a sort of tougher figure, <laughs> or so he comes across, I have to say, rather less cerebral figure, perhaps, but perhaps more of a sort of combat soldier, Though clearly somebody who does think and think hard about things. My own impression, and you know, I've, I've watched film of the headquarters. You see Gerasimov, Surovikin is always there. I think Surovikin is very much the person who is in actual operational control of the battle. So Gerasimov's job, he, you know, he managed, if you like, the mobilisation that took place in September. He made sure that all these men were inducted. He made sure that all those men were trained. He appoints the officers. He comes up with the major plans. He makes sure that the forces have the weapons, the training, the supplies to execute the plans, that kind of thing. But I think the actual battlefield commander, this is my own view, remains Surovikin. So that's my own view. So... This is the military system. I don't think Putin himself is directly involved in it. Obviously, he knows all these people. I mean, he knows Gerasimov because Gerasimov 
attends high level meetings in the um, Security Council, of which he is an ex officio member, um, and you know he meets with Putin. So I mean, Putin knows all of these people, but he is not Gerasimov's direct superior. And I suspect that when Putin does meet Gerasimov, Shoigu is usually there. So th that that is the structure, and I think that is the hierarchy. As I understand it, I don't pretend to be the greatest expert in these things, but that's how it looks to me. Now, about Wagner, you're completely right. Peskov went out of his way to stress the point that Wagner is not some private military company doing its own thing, owned by uh, um, um, Prigozhin, who you know can run it basically as he wishes. That Wagner is an organisation that, in effect, forms part of the Russian armed forces. Now, I've been receiving private information, which I consider comes from a very good source, which has provided me with some background about the Wagner organisation. And it was apparently set up some years ago, basically by Russian military intelligence, by the agency we all know as the GRU, and in collaboration with another agency of the Russian government, which is concerned with internal security. They set it up. And the reason they set it up was because they wanted, and this I'd speculated about before, but this seems to be correct, they wanted an organisation which was made up of professional people drawn from the Russian military, but which Russia could deploy wherever it was needed, both internally and externally, without the constraints imposed by Russian law on the Russian regular army. A bit like the French Foreign Legion, if you wish. And since they wanted to keep this organisation one step distant from the Russian regular military, they created this private company to basically provide it with a kind of vehicle. And Prigozhin was the person who was appointed to head this company. And, and I think that that is the structure, as I understand it. The important thing is that it is these two agencies that still are the ultimate controllers of Wagner. And of course, a new person has been appointed deputy commander of Wagner, who is General Mizintsev, who is a Russian general staff officer. And I'm pretty sure that he's a, basically a full member of the team. And he's probably been brought in to get Wagner under some kind of control. And for all I know, um, when this is all over, he'll replace Prigozhin. Hmm. Okay, uh, excellent stuff. Uh, any, anything you want to add uh, before? Yeah, we I just well very quickly this. this I, I just want to clarify one thing about Mizintsev because, of course, Prigozhin has claimed that Mizintsev was sacked by the general staff and that he offered him the job uh, for the um, to take over Wagner. I don't believe either part of that claim. I don't believe that Mizintsev would have joined Wagner as deputy commander if he was doing that 
against the wishes of the Russian military. I, I, I think that is inconceivable, actually. No general off staff officer in Russia would have acted in that kind of way. I mean, again, I'm not an, an expert on, general, on the general staff in Russia, but my impression is that this is a very disciplined organisation, very much an organisation that regards itself as the elite of the intellectual and leadership elite of the Russian armed forces, Mizintsev has served in the general staff. I don't think he would ever agree to be used by Prigozhin in that sort of way. Now, this business is ugly. It's left a very ugly taste. Um, I have been, I think, sympathetic to Prigozhin's position. You know, obviously looking at it from a Russian side, Wagner has achieved a great deal. He has clearly been an inspirational leader in some respects, many respects. He's obviously close, formed a close bond with his soldiers. I don't think any of that is going to count in his favour once the Battle of Bakhmut is over. <laughs> if the Battle of Bakhmut is won, which I still believe, then as I said, they'll remove him. And if the Battle of Bakhmut is lost, if something really bad happens there, they will blame him. But one way or the other, I think we're coming to the end of his career as a military person in this war. And those who called him in the West a warlord have completely misunderstood Wagner and his role in it and what it's all about. Yeah, but it sells well. He's a warlord of course, and exactly. all this stuff. It sells yeah, well with the collective well. West media. And, and my, my final comment on that is, you know, a couple of days ago, I believe that uh, that the Putin government provided Prigozhin with a really nice off-ramp and a way to save face in the form of Kadyrov and Surovikin and all of those announcements. And I think if, if Prigozhin had just faded away like three days ago, Yes, and allowed Kadyrov and Surovikin to just kind of move in and and just take over, including a lot of the media. You know, Kadyrov's very good at these things. A lot of yes. the media messaging, management yes. things. Then I think uh, it would have been smooth sailing, but obviously that didn't happen. No, and when when one would one would like to know why actually what what went wrong there, because I agree he was provided with an off ramp. And one of the other things is that he's becoming very isolated. I mean, Kadyrov had previously been very much his friend. He's now clearly distancing himself from Brigozhin. Um, Kadyrov's commander, a man called um, Alaudinov, who comes across, by the way, as a very capable commander, is now clearly contradicting Brigozhin. I mean, he's doing so in a very quiet, respectful way, but He's clearly distancing himself from Prigozhin. The other person who um, last night started to make comments, which I, I felt, well, they didn't directly criticise Prigozhin, um, were also sort of saying, you know, don't panic, situation is indeed under control, which is contrary to the impression that Prigozhin has been creating, was Igor Girkin otherwise known as Stelkov, the man who led the militia in 2014 and who has also had his own issues 
with Shoigu Putin and the Putin government and the Russian military. And um, the very fact that this person is now distancing himself, or so it seems to me from Prigozhin, at least at the moment, shows what an isolated figure Prigozhin is becoming. All right. Uh, the Duran.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, and Rockfin. And go to the Duran shop. 10% off. Use the code GOODDAY. Take care.